Hey, Curious Clinicians. Tony Brew here. Uh, This week, we're sharing an episode from the Amazing Bedside Rounds podcast. In this episode, which originally aired in October, Adam Rodman and I discuss the COVID-19 pandemic, and we attempt to place it in a historical context. If you know anything about Adam Rodman and his amazing podcast, you know that he takes us through a fascinating historical journey. Now, I was lucky enough to join Adam, and my goal was to answer some interesting pathophysiology questions about plagues of past and of present. If you like this episode, please do subscribe to Bedside Rounds. It's well worth it. All right, so without further ado, here is the original antigenic sin. Thank you so much, Dr. Choi. Uh, hi, everybody. My name is Adam, Adam Rodman. I am an internist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, and I host actually the uh, the ACP partnered podcast, Bedside Rounds, <laughs> and uh, I am so excited to be here. And I'm Tony Brew, also a proud internist and a longtime fan of Bedside Rounds. Um, so Adam and I are super excited to do another live podcast. Um, as Dr. Choi mentioned, last year we talked about the French disease at 500, uh, and today we'll be discussing, if you can believe it, four more plagues, uh, two of which are ancient, uh, one which emerged just a few decades ago, and the last one emerged last year, as you can imagine. Um, yeah, so I guess, Tony, you and I are just doing all plagues all the time. <laughs> <laughs> there are enough of them. Yes, there are enough of them. And I actually want to mentally situate all of us back in March and early April, which was during the surge of uh, the peak of the surge here in Co- uh, of COVID-19 in Massachusetts. And um, there was a lot of uncertainty, a lot more uncertainty about the disease than we have right now. I don't know about, about you guys, but every single day we were noticing new things about COVID patients, right? People were coming in with cardiomyopathy, um, ARDS. We were just learning about how bad ARDS, the disease called, caused, and all these odd clotting disorders. And even I even had a patient with encephalopathy. It seemed like COVID-19 could do anything at that point. And there was so much uncertainty about whether we were going to be able to hold. In March, it seemed every other week we were adding in a new COVID ICU. We were pulling ventilators out of storage and converting floor units. And there was a palpable sense of fear, right? Of fear that our health system might not be able to hold. And it's easy to forget that sometimes now that we know a lot more about the disease. And I very rapidly, and, and as someone who reads a lot of history, I know that physicians have felt like this through all plagues, but I, I super rapidly felt like I was a stranger in my own hospital, like everything was alien to me. And I actually remember when this news report came out, or this report from the CDC came out that confirmed everything we'd been seeing. And you guys actually saw this slide earlier with Lauren Doktoroff, but I remember seeing that most of my patients coming in were from members of minority communities, black patients in particular, and the CDC in uh, early April confirmed that, that uh, members, uh, th- that black people and members of Native American groups were having both drastically higher rates of hospitalization and of mortality. And then a month later, George Floyd was murdered and protests spread across the country. And it was a really, like, on top of everything else that was going on, it was a really grim time. And of course, one question that w- that has arisen is why are these populations seeing the brunt of COVID-19? Um, because as Matt, Adam uh, sh- is showing here and was shown earlier, the, the gaps are absolutely huge. Um, so if you look at uh, the age group 35 to 44, blacks die at a 10 times higher rate than whites. 
And I think that most people here would agree that it's not because of some fundamental difference between white and black bodies, uh, but rather that there are some social differences that affect health outcomes. The stress of racism, history of housing discrimination, lack of equal access to health care, uh, and more exposure to frontline jobs. And all of these risk factors and, uh, and more are now lumped into a category called the social determinants of health. And this slide was shown earlier as well. It's from the CDC. And the social determinants of health are the conditions in the environment in which people are born, live, learn, work, play, worship, and age. And they affect a wide range of health, functioning, and quality of life outcomes and risks. Yeah, and what's interesting, Tony, about the social determinants of health is that, well, the word itself didn't exist until the 1980s. And in uh, in medicine, we, we kind of act like this idea of the social determinants of health is a pretty novel idea, that it dates to the late 20th, early 21st century. But I think the fact that we're giving this presentation uh, should suggest that, in fact, this idea that uh, our, our society and people around us and our, our place in society affect health outcomes is very old indeed. And I'd argue that it's as old as modern medicine. Um, in high-income countries, I think until the last year, we've generally thought of the social determinants of health affecting chronic diseases, so especially like diabetes, heart disease, stroke. Um, but of course, of course they affect plagues as well. They, they, epidemic disease is equally affected by the social determinants of health. And one of the things that, at, at least for me, I, I think societally it's been easier to sweep the social determinants of health under the rug when you have such slow-moving chronic diseases, but a plague forces you to look. So today, what Tony and I are going to do is we're going to go through three historic plagues and then, uh, and then COVID-19 and talk about how our medical and scientific understanding of race and the social determinants of health has affected how we talk and understand disease. And we're going to start with yellow fever in New Orleans, talking about acclimation and a new type of social capital. Uh, then we're going to talk about polio in the early 20th century. Uh, we're going to touch on HIV and AIDS in San Francisco in the early 1980s, um, and then bring everything back together to 2020. And throughout, we're also going to show how these three plagues have been explained, um, at times incorrectly, uh, using race uh, and how this all relates back to COVID-19. Uh, we'll also discuss America's original sin and the idea of the original antigenic sin. Okay, so... We're going to start at yellow fever, but before we go there, I want to provide some epistemic context. So the, that the idea that the world around us, so where we eat, where we live, who we know, where we're born, fundamentally shapes our health, was actually pretty much uncontroversial for almost 2,000 years. And the reason is, and Tony loves to make fun of me whenever I do this, but this idea of the four humors and humoralism, and I'm going to just go over it very briefly, but the fundamental explanatory context for medicine for most most of medical history was this idea that uh, of balance, right? That there are four constituent body fluids in the human body, as well as pneuma, the air of life, that make up all health and disease. And um, that it's imbalances in these humors, which can be caused by the food we eat, by the astrological signs above, by, uh, by our really melancholic neighbor. Um, the idea that those would affect our health was completely uncontroversial. And the relics of these ideas, like these ideas were so powerful that we still reference them today. So we still talk about personalities being phlegmatic, melancholic, or choleric. And uh, I mean, we still talk about having a good sense of humor. Uh, prior to the 19th century, a good sense of humor would have meant, oh, they're really happy because they're well-balanced. Now it just means that you're funny. 
this is not just something that's uh, for historical interest, because um, the four humors was also our initial way of understanding differences in human populations. So we generally gloss this over talking about scientific history, but in uh, in the Enlightenment, humoral thinking was the essentials of what is now today called scientific racism. So this idea that you can divide all of humans up into four races. And this is an example of Carolus or Carl Linnaeus's um, classification for humans. And he divided all humans up into four races, Americanus, Europeanus, Asiaticus, Africanus. And if you read the descriptions, you can see they're explicitly linked to the humors and also incredibly racist. Uh, Carl, Carl Linnaeus was not some sort of quack, right? We still use his classification system for species that he developed with some modifications. And he also developed um, a, the actually the earliest classification system for diseases that was kind of post-humoral, right? Talking about nosology. So what's really interesting is that from the 18th century, this uh, he published this in, I think, 1721. So from the early 18th century, you still have the beginnings of scientific racism um, and this idea that you can subdivide humans into race, but you also have this sort of fundamental idea that differences in health are explained in differences in race. And even as we gave up the humoral system, these ideas would persist. And one place where we see uh, this is in the way observations about yellow fever were initially explained. Um, and so, Adam, why don't we uh, move on to yellow fever? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So by the early 19th century, humoral medicine had fallen by the wayside, at least among medical elites. Uh, among average people, humoral medicine actually persisted into the early 20th century. Um, and the dominant way that we explained infectious disease was something called miasma. And oversimplifying, I'm doing a lot of oversimplifying, but miasma is the idea that toxic vapors and smells itself caused epidemic disease. Well, there's a huge problem, though, when you're talking about how differently people do with disease, because different people, for example, with yellow fever, some people might survive and some people might die. And why is that? And one of the big explanations throughout Europe, and especially in the United States, England, and Germany, was this idea of diathesis or constitution. And that essentially means that there were different diatheses, different makeups that made different people that's not very controversial, but more controversially, different groups of people um, resistant or susceptible to diseases. And uh, diathesis is this fun word that has managed to survive into the 21st century. I think we only use it now to talk about a bleeding diathesis, uh, which would mean a hereditary, uh, hereditary predisposition to bleeding. And uh, one of the most striking examples of this is in yellow fever. So yellow fever is a disease, I've actually only seen it once in my career. Uh, yellow fever at the time was called the yellow Yellow Jack, and it's actually named after the slide. Uh, sorry, after the flag that was flown by disease ships. Um, so, if anyone knows maritime custom, the Yellow Jack is this—the Quebec flag on the left. And since the time of roughly the 16th century, it would be flown by ships entering a harbor to say that they had disease on board and either needed medical clearance or needed to quarantine. Um, the flag on the right is the Quebec flag, and that's what's used in the 20th century uh, to show that a ship has disease on board. You can see them both here. This is this is a cartoon from Tintin um, being flown for quarantine. And 
this is me going off on a tangent a little bit, but if everybody will remember back to February when the Diamond Princess was in the news and it was in quarantine in Japan, if you look very, very carefully, this I was kind of excited to see this, it's actually flying the yellow jack to show that the ship is diseased. So this like amazing tradition from the Black Death is still with us 600 years later. All right, so going on, the other name for the disease was unfortunately the very descriptive black vomit. Um, This was a common name, and you can see in this picture just how quickly the disease, this is a young man in Cadiz in 1820, and you can see how quickly it uh, progressed. Okay, so you can imagine that um, if the disease, if yellow fever was spread by swampy swampy smells or bad smells, that swampy places would be the place most affected in people's minds. And uh, yellow fever was really on the minds of people, of Americans in particular, in the early 19th century. Uh, In 1793, there was an outbreak in Philadelphia, which was the capital of the United States at the time. It killed 10% of the population of Philadelphia and caused the federal government to flee. And uh, when I was writing this draft, it seemed like an absurd comparison. Of course, now now we have seen COVID-19 spread among uh, the highest levels of the U.S. government as well, though fortunately with uh, lower rates of death. Um, the city, as you can imagine, if we're talking about foul smells and swamps, that was most affected in the United States by yellow fever was New Orleans. And as someone, I, I lived there for five years, and I can attest that it still smells like swamps and there are still very questionable smells coming from the city. So New Orleans was an atypical American city at the turn of the 19th century. Uh, New Orleans was actually sold from Napoleon um, All of New France was sold in 1803, and in 1812, New Orleans officially entered the United States as a very different sort of city. Um, So it was multiracial from the beginning, and the population was made up of Creoles, of the French, and French referred not only to French people from France, but also from Haiti. Um, When In the parlance of the day, Haitians did not uh, refer to enslaved, the formerly enslaved, now free black people, but would have referred to the white colonial masters. So a lot of them had moved to New Orleans, as well as many free blacks. And as you can imagine, given this is uh, Louisiana in 1812, a large population still of enslaved black people. And then once 1812 hit tons of new immigrants, both from the old United States and from Europe, especially Ireland and Germany, moved to the city. Um, And then this is important because starting in 1796 and then pretty much going on every three years after, it w- New Orleans was hit by wave after wave of the Yellow Jack. Um, 8% on average in this period, 8% of the city died every single year. Uh, it's an insane amount of people dying. And it, it, this wasn't even. In, in these immigrant neighborhoods, up to 20% of the people died every single year. And among German and Irish immigrants, the death rate was 20 times higher than that of native Creoles who grew up in New Orleans. It's definitely still the case that up to half of patients who progress to severe yellow fever, uh, this is known as the period of intoxication, uh, still may die of the disease. And just as we've seen with COVID, uh, these patients die of multi-organ failure, uh, including renal failure, myocardial involvement, CNS involvement, and of course, the hepatic involvement uh, with jaundice that gives the plague its name. Yeah, so Tony, my question for you is, was there actually a dramatically different difference in race for, or sorry, in death for different ethnic groups? Um, The the short answer is probably not. Um, So one cohort study from Brazil published in 2019 uh, found that age and male sex were associated with higher mortality from yellow fever. Now, race was not, though there was a numerical difference, and and we're showing that here. 
now, some contemporary looks at older data from the 1800s does support the observation that mort- mortality rates were higher in Caucasian populations. But this is far from certain, because as you can imagine, using data generated from the 1800s, even looking at it uh, with our statistical methods now, uh, is not without uh, potential issue. Now, this second study did conclude that the resistance to yellow fever, if one such did exist, may have been conferred through a selective advantage. Um, And importantly, the difference is not one of race, but rather one of ancestry and geographic exposure. So if your ancestors arose from areas where yellow fever was endemic, and here's a slide showing some endemic regions, uh, you may have a lower probability of death. And we've absolutely seen this with other infectious diseases, even to the point where mutations that would otherwise be selected against persist. Right? So I think the one that, that we're all most familiar with is sickle cell trait and the apparent protection against severe malaria. Now, importantly, sickle cell disease isn't transferred with race. And if you look at the data from the CDC, incident rates for sickle cell trait are, are shown here. Um, and this is based on uh, data from 13 states in the United States. But notice that although the race the, the rates are different by race, sickle cell trait is not race restricted. As a comparator, in Greece, sickle cell trait affects about two percent of the population, and the incidence for one Greek island, or Orchomenos, uh, has been reported as high as twenty to twenty three percent. So sickle cell isn't a disease of blacks, but is instead a disease of of those whose ancestors were exposed to malaria, whether it be in some African nations or uh, on an island such as this. Um, this, Now, the same has been shown for cystic fibrosis, uh, a disease that likely protects against tuberculosis. So in the U.S., uh, here again are some CDC rates of CF, and they differ by race, but are again not race-restricted. So... Neither sickle cell disease nor cystic fibrosis is associated with a biological race, but instead a biological disease. In the case of sickle cell, it's malaria, and for tuberculosis, it's CF. Um, so the question, of course, becomes, you know, could the same be true for yellow fever? And, you know, it's tempting to assume a similar uh, explanatory model and an ex- a similar uh, selective pressure may have existed. Um, but Mariola Espinoza and a, a number of others have argued that Although these elegant explanations are wonderful in theory, you still require evidence. And for yellow fever, right now, no such evidence uh, has been presented. Yeah, and of course, what's what's really interesting to me is that the people of 19th century New Orleans came up with their own explanation what was going on. And obviously, they had no idea about immunity. They had no idea about conferring protection from other diseases. But what they viewed this as is something they called acclimation, which was also called seasoning or creolization. And acclimation was initially, like in the early 19th century, it was thought of becoming used to somehow of the noxious, toxic airs of New Orleans. Uh, But by the middle of the 19th century, acclimation was explicitly understood as having contracted and then survived yellow fever. And this sounds really similar to immunity, right? I mean, that description could be true of any number of diseases. But it wasn't. It was tied in a, up in a whole host of complex social factors. And I'm going to quote from the historian Catherine Oliverius. She wrote an amazing paper on this topic. But she described acclimation as a socially acknowledged lifelong immunity that provided accessibility to economic, political, and social power. 
And this is really, really strange. I mean, or I shouldn't say it's strange. It leads to some really strange behavior. Uh, Yellow fever outbreaks throughout the world would be accompanied by people fleeing the city. Uh, There's actually a lot of famous paintings of people taking all their belongings and getting out of the city, but not in New Orleans. You have a situation where new immigrants, especially young men, not only stay, but they attempt to contract the disease, even with death rates, as Tony said, as high as 50%. And that was because surviving offered so many opportunities. So there were a lot of jobs that would not hire a young man until he had proven that he had caught yellow fever and survived. Because, I mean, why would someone invest all that money in you knowing that you could die in just a couple months? Uh, If you were acclimated, salaries were higher and job prospects were easier. There is examples of like customs houses where 50% of the people working in it would be killed off one year. So lots of new jobs were opening. Um, Being acclimated would be necessary to secure a good marriage. And there's a, in her paper, she describes actually a wealthy widow who used her the fact that she was acclimated to to secure a good marriage. Um, By the middle of the 19th century, and this is how you know a phenomenon is real when the insurance companies get involved, but all these insurance houses in the the Northeast would require medical documentation of acclimation, of surviving yellow fever, in order to offer a life insurance policy. And so this is, this is what I think is bonkers. The New Orleans Board of Health, that is the highest public health uh, organization in the city, in 1849 issued an official recommendation, which I think Tony's on the next slide, right? And you can, you can read it. It's in all caps. It's a normal article, except they get to the end. And they say, the value of acclimation is worth the risk. Uh, again, this carries a 50% death rate. You know, interestingly, even today, some countries still require proof of yellow fever immunity for entry. Um, so this is from the CDC, and what we're showing here is the uh, the recommendation for uh, Nigeria, where yellow fever is endemic. And you'll note that they indicate in this that there's an ongoing um, uh, outbreak of yellow fever, and yellow fe- uh, uh, proof of yellow fever vaccination is required uh, for entry Uh the idea, of course, being that with a high mortality rate, we want to ensure that anyone who visits our country isn't as exposing themselves to uh, a disease that might kill them. Yeah, and this actually makes me pretty nostalgic, Tony. So I, um, for those of you who don't know, I did a fellowship in global health in Southern Africa, in Botswana, and it was right before the uh, the WHO guidelines changed. So I actually had to carry in my passport a little yellow card that said I had been vaccinated for yellow fever. And Speaking of passports, I think this is where there's some fascinating parallels with COVID-19. If everybody can mentally situate themselves back in April of this year, we were talking a lot about immunity passports. So I pulled an article from The Lancet that describes it as, and I'm quoting here, a digital or physical document that certifies an individual has been infected and is purportedly immune to SARS-CoV-2. Individuals in possession of an immunity passport could be exempt from physical restrictions and could return to work, school, and daily life. So there were actually some countries such as Italy that seriously studied and considered this. And uh, I mean, isn't this a similar idea to acclimation? Essentially, you catch coronavirus, you survive, and it gives you some sort of social capital. Uh, Tony, what do you, am am I like out on a limb here? What do you think about this parallel? No, I think there's definitely echoes to the uh, quote, you know, the value of acclimation is worth the risk. Um, And we hear these arguments when we hear arguments about herd immunity with COVID-19. And even for me, a couple of months ago, uh, I had antibody testing. Just a couple weeks ago, my wife had antibody testing. And when uh, I returned negative and she returned negative, we were both relatively unhappy because it meant we were unlikely to have immunity and remained at risk. Um, But as as others have argued, um, the use of immunity passports is actually a bad idea. 
Um, so this is an editorial that was published on nature.com and it provides 10 reasons why we need to be cautious about the use of something like an immunity passport. And they go beyond just the uncertainties related to lifelong immunity and the possibility of reinfection. There are potential issues of access, discrimination, and marginalizations. And, and as you can imagine, these issues are enormous. Yeah, and talking about marginalization, I mean, you could even see this example fall apart with acclimation in New Orleans. Because when we're talking about the social benefits of acclimation, they only accrue to a very specific population, and that's mostly uh, young white men and Creole men. Uh, so blacks who made up a significant part of the population did not get those benefits. Free blacks did not get the benefits, uh, nor did it accrue, of course, to enslaved people. So for example, an enslaved person who had caught yellow fever and survived was worth, if you look at the uh, the registers of slave sales, was worth almost 25% more. Um, but at the same time, racist doctors in the South used this to argue, they, they actually argued that people of African descent were naturally immune to yellow fever. So there were real attempts among the proto-epidemiologists of the time to show that blacks died at a much lower rate. So in 1849, only three deaths were recorded among black people compared to 766 in whites. Um, and surgeon and slave owner Josiah Knott, he uh, suggested that, and I'm quoting here, Negro blood is an antidote against yellow fever for the smallest admixture of it with the white will protect against this disease. Um, and I mean, this is an absurd statement, right? Because if you truly believed this, right, that mixing of the races would prevent disease uh, or, or save lives, it seems to me that's a pretty good argument for not having slavery and in increasing mixing of the races. Of course, that is not what happened. Um, if any of you have heard of Samuel Cartwright, Samuel Cartwright is a very prominent Southern physician from Louisiana who came up with the, the new disease of drapetomania, the disease that make a slave want to run away. Well, he used all this information to argue that um, yellow fever proved that people of African descent were meant for slavery, that this was nature's way of showing that slavery was a natural good. Uh, so, Tony, do you think that acclimation actually existed? Well, I mean, if we look at um, Oliverius's definition of acclimation, and, and I'm, I'm putting it back up here on the slide again. Um, so if you were to define acclimation as lifelong immunity after yellow fever infection, then yes, probably it exists. Uh, but again, there's no racial or social underpinning for this. Um, and whether the remainder of the definition existed, well, I think you've kind of argued that um, uh, the evidence of prior immunity uh, did provide accessibility to economic, political, and social power. Um, it'd be interesting to make some pathophysiologic connections here, and, and um, you know, Adam invited me on, knowing that this was is going to be impossible for me to not attempt to do this. Uh, so yellow fever has um, just one serotype, which results in lifelong immunity after infection. And there's one reason. This is actually one of the reasons why we have a successful vaccine for yellow fever. Uh, so compare this to another flavivirus, dengue. And it's actually worth noting that flaviviruses are named after the yellow fever virus because flavis is uh, Latin for yellow. So dengue has four serotypes. And immunity to one serotype does not confer immunity to another serotype. In fact, and as many of you may know, uh, someone who experiences a mild infection with one serotype may experience hemorrhagic fever if they're secondarily infected with a different serotype, right? So repeated infections, particularly if this, the subsequent ones are a different serotype, can be more severe in the case of dengue. And this relates to the idea of original antigenic sin. 
So original antigenic sin, sin has been best described in influenza and was uh, first described here in, in 1960. And it's the idea that one's immune response uh, or one's immune system responds best to the original version of an infection, infectious agent to which it's exposed. So when, when someone is exposed to a second, slightly different version, their immune system does not react in the optimal way. So in the case of influenza, this may mean an inadequate response to vaccination. So depending on the antigen against which antibodies are made in the first infection or immunization, subsequent immunization with a different antigen of influenza may only boost the antibodies against the old antigen and not recognize the new antigen, which makes subsequent in, uh, um, vaccinations less optimal. Now, in the case of dengue, when a second exposure is to a new serotype, this can result in an increased risk of hemorrhagic fever. And this is an example of something called antibody-dependent enhancement. So if we return once again to COVID-19, um, some have actually made arguments that, that are actually reminiscent of acclimation. Uh, so here, for example, um, uh, is Rand Paul, uh, Senator Rand Paul, arguing about cross-reactivity. One explanation for the low death rate in much of Asia is that the population may have a higher degree of exposure to coronavirus colds, coronavirus colds, and therefore have more pre-existing cross-reactive immunity. But essentially what Rand Paul argues is that uh, it may be that certain populations have been exposed to coronaviruses in the past, and those prior exposures are providing them some cross-immunity to SARS-CoV-2. Um, well, what's interesting is that um, there actually have been a number of authors who've proposed exactly the opposite. Um, and they actually uh, are proposing the idea that is similar to this idea of original antigenic sin, that if you were previously exposed to SARS-CoV virus, the one that causes SARS, this may actually predispose you to a more severe response to SARS-CoV-2, just as we see with dengue. So this would actually be another example of the phenomenon of uh, original antigenic sin. Man, that is fascinating. Um, so I mean, the thing about yellow fever is that the disease actually kind of went away before we had to contend with any of this medically. Uh, in 1881, Carlos Finlay, he's a Cuban physician, he had uh, hypothesized that mosquitoes were the vector. And this was soon after followed by large-scale attempts to drain swamps and installation of uh, sanitation systems. So even decades before Walter Reed provided the definitive proof that Aedes aegypti spread yellow fever, um, the disease had pretty much left the United States. And in fact, the last outbreak was in 1905 in the United States which was in New Orleans. Yeah, and unfortunately, just as yellow fever disappeared, uh, paralytic polio uh, emerged in the United States. And so that's what we're going to talk about next. Yeah, and uh, I think polio is a, a nice a nice transition plague to talk about because by the time that <laughs> the nice transition plague by the time that polio was really striking, there were new ideas that had come in vogue not only about the causes of disease but also about racial categorizations. So the first one is germ theory. I don't think I need to explain what germ theory is. Uh, I wanted to show this photo though because this is the first photo ever of a microorganism. Um, this is anthrax taken from a rabbit's eyeball by Robert. Coke. Um, but also the idea of public health had been fully developed by this time. And that's the idea that the government should take an active role in preventing disease, infectious disease in particular, by increasing sanitation, draining swamps, um, installing infectious disease hospitals that were free to the public, uh, mostly to isolate individuals. And then with both active quarantine and isolation 
measures in the settings of outbreaks. And uh, consequently, on the next slide, um, you can see that mortality dropped dramatically from infectious diseases uh, long before any effective antibiotics were available. This is a famous slide of tuberculosis mortality in England, actually. And you can see streptomycin is introduced in 1946, but at that time, mortality had already dropped by one-sixth. Um, what we like to talk about less um, and what is often glossed over in science education is that the spread of public health was accompanied by the idea of eugenics. And eugenics in particular was explicitly linked with the idea of hygiene and sanitation, uh, to the point that actually in, in some countries, so Germany in particular, the term racial hygiene was actually used to describe eugenical ideas. And uh, if, you, if you think about it, you can understand why this era was so primed to accept eugenics ideas. Um, if you have a diathesis or a constitutionalist view of disease, so that's that different populations have different constitutions. And understanding this was a very racist period as well. So they wouldn't just say different. They would say they are superior races and inferior races. So if you accept that premise that that's what explains our different susceptibilities, then does it not follow that the government should enact policies in that sense? And that's one of the important things that I want to get across here is that eugenics was not a fringe movement in the late 19th and the early 20th century. It was part of mainstream medical practice. And uh, polio in particular is what I want to talk about to illustrate this, um, illustrate the interplay between public health, the social determinants of health, and eugenics. Um, polio had been a very rare disease, or I, sorry, poliomyelitis had been a very rare disease throughout most of human history, really until the beginning of the 20th century, when there started annual summer epidemics all over the world, especially in the United States. Um, and by its peak in the 1940s, polio was paralyzing or killing over half a million people each year around the world. So, Tony, I, I think medically or scientifically, why did polio suddenly flare up when everything else was improving so much from infectious diseases? And this is an important question because, as you noted, polio virus was likely infecting humans uh, for centuries. But pol uh, severe polio, uh, paralytic polio, was an emergent disease in the early um, uh, 1900s. Um, so, and you can see that here, uh, where the cases of paralytic polio uh, really started to explode in the early 1900s. Prior to the 20th century, most became infected with polio during infancy. And that's a time when one continues to make use of passive immunity from breast milk. So this meant that one could acquire active immunity while benefiting from that passive immunity. And the result was a relatively mild case of polio, specifically a lesser propensity for paralytic polio. And as sanitation improved, polio was acquired at a later age. And this meant that those infected were less likely to have the benefit of the passive immunity. And the result was an increased propensity for severe polio. And that's shown here uh, in a study of the 1916 polio epidemic in New York City. Uh, so this hypothesis has been challenged, uh, but it remains a compelling explanation for this uh, change in the rate of paralytic polio in the early to mid-20th uh, century. And there were actually a number of similarities uh, to COVID, Adam, right? So for one, shutdowns were absolutely a part of the initial response to the uh, um, uh, polio's emergence in the early 1900s. So this is uh, uh, from the San Antonio Express and shows how they shut down schools in response to, to polio. But th this isn't the only uh, comparator. 
Yeah, and I think the other big comparison is what we were talking about in the beginning. In the response to polio is one of the first times that there's a real public discussion of how different groups of people are differently affected by the disease. Um, As you can imagine, uh, this didn't always go on the best track. So initially, polio was thought to be a disease of the urban poor. Um, Very quickly, it was actually seen as a disease of everybody, Um, and in fact, maybe even striking the wealthy more. There was one notable exception, though, that got a lot of press, and that was black children. So just as with yellow fever, there was a widespread perception that black children rarely got the disease. And vital registers, so in the 20th century, there are really well-adapted epidemiological systems to essentially what we have today to do surveillance. And the vital registers showed this as well. So, um, for example, in 1924, there was a huge epidemic in Detroit, and only five of the 300 cases of paralytic polio were in black children. And... uh, As you can imagine, one of the most prominent arguments for why this might be was the constitutionalist or the eugenics argument. Um, So George Draper, he was the polio expert at Rockefeller Hospital, and this was no like fringe figure. He was FDR's personal physician. So he actually argued that black children didn't catch polio because of their constitutions, and I'm quoting here, he wrote that the primitive races were more resistant to disease other than syphilis, compared to the complex and delicate bodies of Europeans. And this was the framing that a lot of people used to explain these racial and ethnic differences in the early 20th century. So um, for the CDC, uh, Paul Harmon in 1936 published an analysis of polio looking at different races and ethnic groups. And he found overall that the black morbidity was only 241 per 100,000 but for whites, it was 383 per 100,000. And uh, looking at all this data, he essentially draws the same conclusion as Draper, and that is racial susceptibility that constitutions explain the differences in, uh, in epidemiology of the disease. And so, Tony, for me, I think there's first two interesting questions. And um, first is, were there actual differences or are there actual differences in both race and socioeconomic status? And then number two, if there are, why, why does that happen? Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, you know, the differences in rates of severe polio that we saw in the early to mid 1900s, the, I think the leading hypothesis again is that these resulted from differences in the age of polio acquisition, right? So those who were, uh, who otherwise benefited from the improved sanitation, they actually saw the negative consequence of more severe polio, right? So this meant that marginalized populations who did not have the same socioeconomic benefits, they experienced the ironic benefit of less severe polio. Uh, but again, as, as, you know, I'm going to keep re- stating this, this wasn't somehow based on race. Yeah, and Tony, so that's what I think is really cool because if you read Draper's paper, he gives he he comes across the answer because the best uh, the best counter argument is his statistics that show that poor Southern whites had similarly low levels of polio to Southern blacks, um, and the reason probably I mean the South was a very impoverished region region of the country until roughly World War II, and it really uh, lagged behind in both sanitation and electrification. And if you look epidemiologically, there actually weren't any major polio outbreaks until the 1940s. And the other thing that I, I want to mention is these were not just benign distinctions that were talked about like in 
in the ivory tower, right? These had real effects on black children and black people because these constitutionalist arguments were used to deny polio care for black children and they were used to keep black people out of polio treatment and rehabilitation centers. I mean, not even segregated, right? They actually denied black people entry to rehabs because uh, they were like, black people don't, don't get polio. Things fortunately start to change towards the middle of the 20th century, and it's a whole other podcast about why that happened. Um, One of the reasons is the politics of the Cold War, and the other is the personal activism of Eleanor Roosevelt. But uh, what happened is that the Tuskegee Institute was named an official polio hospital, which led to an influx of black voices into the uh, polio community that includes both doctors and nurses. And backing from the president and his wife. And this led to like an official argument from on high that there was no racial difference between black people and white people when it came to polio. And what they instead argued that there was unequal access to care, which A, led to less registration of cases, and then B, um, less awareness of polio in black communities. And so the March of Dimes, when they were collecting money to develop a polio vaccine, again, backed by the Roosevelts, officially adopted this in their messaging. Um, They had an official, uh, official motto that it affected all races, and they intentionally included both black and white children in their advertising. And, And here is an example of that. And when the Salk vaccine trials were running, and this is, again, an aside, but the, the Salk vaccine trials were run on the HeLa cells from Henrietta Lacks. But uh, they, they intentionally involved a large number of black children, which had not been done before in trials. And in a lot of the, uh, the press around it, they actually had black doctors giving the vaccine. So you had these, uh, these powerful images where a black doctor was giving orders to a white nurse to vaccinate a white child. So from uh, from this period, you can start to see how things are changing. But I also want to be explicitly clear here. We're talking about medical conceptions of disease. Um, the Tuskegee Institute, we're in the 1950s, right? It's still in the Jim Crow South. And the fact that they tested a vaccine and delivered a vaccine more equitably didn't make racism go away. And uh, when researching this, there was actually a really powerful image. So in May of 1954, uh, the city of Mobile, Alabama had a drive to vaccinate all the children in the city, and they did it at a local elementary school. It was a segregated elementary school. So they have an example, and you can see where white children are lining up to go inside, and the black children have to sit on the lawn because they're not allowed inside the school, not even to use the restroom. You know, I'll say, Adam, it's important to note that yellow fever and polio were not the only plagues, um, obviously, to shake our country in the last hundred years. Arguably, the most important of the uh, of the second half of the century was HIV/AIDS. Uh, but as you'll, I think, mention, we're not going to have enough time to cover that today. Yeah, we're we're gonna go over this very quickly. I think it's important to talk a little bit about HIV/AIDS, since, um, well, for obvious reasons. So by the early 1980s, like we had started to recontextualize our understanding of disease into risk factors. So for example, we started to talk about smoking as a risk factor for heart disease. And when AIDS, or as it was still known in like 1982, GRID started to started to become, as we started to gain awareness of it, it was really unclear how the disease was spread. And you can actually see, if you read the contemporary reports about it, that risk factors are the way that we talk about the disease. So... Um, Actually, uh, if you're listening to this after, I'll have these papers in in the show notes. But uh, people, doctors, were hypothesizing 
Is AIDS from party drugs? Is it from drug use itself? Is it caused by prostitution? Was there something about the sexual lifestyles of the patients? And I want to be clear here, obviously, homosexuality is not a lifestyle, but in the medical discourse in the 1980s, in the early 1980s, it was it was treated as such. And um, you can actually see in some of these early names of AIDS, this, uh, this risk factor approach. So... Um, it was called the 4-H disease, and the 4-Hs stand for homosexuals, heroin users, hemophiliacs, and Haitians. And then, unfortunately, in the lay press, it's sometimes just called the gay plague, right? A terrible name. And it literally took uh, the Surgeon General, so C. Everett Koop, he mailed an eight-page explainer. And this is in the late 80s, so after we knew that it was caused by HIV. But he mailed this to every single household in the United States, 107 million mailers. It was the largest mailing in U.S. history. Uh, to shift the conception from, and I'm quoting from his biography, here, from the moral politics of homosexuality, sexual promiscuity, and intravenous drug use, practices through which AIDS was spread, to concern with the medical care, economic position, and civil rights of AIDS sufferers. Which I think is going to bring us all the way back to where we started talking about COVID-19. Because, you know, one of the reasons that we did this and what we've all been talking about here today is what lessons can we draw from America's past experiences with plagues looking forward to what we're going to do with COVID-19. So... There are some signs for optimism. You can see how we've evolved in talking about race and health. So in the 19th century, we're firmly in the realm of scientific racism and talking about constitutional arguments of health differences between races and using this to justify slavery. By the 20th century, we started to talk more about um, inequities and risk factors for disease and how these affected groups differently. So in poverty, housing, and education. And now in the 21st century, we're talking more and more about structural racism and bias and how this itself leads to differences um, between different groups. But I mean, this is this is my pessimistic side because Tony mentioned at the beginning of the talk, like we can't exactly pat ourselves on the back because in 2020 right now, if you are a 40-year-old black man with COVID-19, you have a 10 times higher chance of dying of the disease than a 40-year-old white man. And I think the reason that this is really pertinent is we want to talk about these issues, just as we did in polio, about the deployment of a vaccine, which hopefully is right around the corner. So the CDC and the NIH have been thinking about this for a long time. Um, the U.S. National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine, that's NASM, have been um, planning how to distribute a vaccine since the 2009 swine flu pandemic. Um, they were they were planning, of course, for something like the 1918 flu, and they've drawn this as the framework. Um, and the framework draws distinctions between uh, occupational risks and then health risks. But based on everything that we've been talking about, you can easily see how this would just perpetuate past disparities and past inequities. So since May of this year, the World Health Organization has urged that unjust disparities be reduced in any distribution of a vaccine. And this is hot off the press because NASM announced just two weeks ago that they were now going to adjust their framework to meet three equal aims. And that is the maximum benefit for all people, equal concern for all, those who are old, and then a third new one, the mitigation of health inequities. And this is the new protocol uh, that I got from a paper just last week. And you can see it's different than the influenza protocol. So first, because COVID-19 is a different disease than influenza, but second, because it's trying to minimize inequities within different racial groups. So NASM now formally states, and I'm quoting here, vaccine access should be prioritized for geographical, geographical areas identified as vulnerable through the social vulnerability index or another more specific index. 
And yeah, so there's a BMJ paper that was also recently published that gives an example of this. So the authors write that uh, write this example here. So owing to their age, two 70-year-old women will both be at increased risk of dying from COVID-19. But a well-off white woman still faces a lower risk than a, a worse-off inner-city black woman. Likewise, while surgeons and nurses are health workers, the former are at far less risk than the latter at work and at home. Accounting for such differences can considerably improve fairness. So, Tony, you spend a lot of your time in the world of clinical ethics. What do you think about all this? Yeah, so there's a lot of different models for vaccine allocation that have been discussed uh, you know, historically and then obviously now. And many of them use this idea of, quote-unquote, treating people equally. And so one example of this um, uh, that was in, uh, in the movies was what we saw in the, uh, in co- the movie Contagion. Uh, there, birthdays were selected at random, and vaccines were allocated to those with that birthday, right? So that's the classic way to treat every single person exactly the same. This is actually what we did uh, uh, for the draft during the Vietnam War. But although this may treat people equally, it, it unfortunately fails to incorporate uh, important considerations, right? Like the social determinants of health and how those have led to inequities from the start. And the problem, therefore, by treating people um, equally and being blind to this is it perpetuates those inequities. Yeah, I, that's, that's a really helpful framework. So, Tony... Uh, I am really curious. We've spent dozens of hours preparing for this and reading a lot of old papers. So what is your takeaway from today's discussion? Yeah, so my major takeaway uh, is that we may see different rates of infection, morbidity, and mortality in different populations, right? Um, But it's not race that causes these differences. So prior explanations used uh, these observations about racial differences to support racist belief systems. And some actually remain susceptible uh, now to drawing similar conclusions. But hopefully some of what Adam and I have been talking about uh, this afternoon has shown that there are alternate explanations. So in the case of some diseases, it's ancestral factors like infectious disease exposure. Right. So this is true for sickle cell, cystic fibrosis, two diseases that are not race-restricted, but which experience selection based on a relative protection against malaria and tuberculosis. Um, So a similar story has been argued for yellow fever, but as I mentioned earlier, um, there's uncertainty about the historically described racial differences, and I think more importantly, the evolutionary explanation is far from proven. Um, I don't think we can use uh, or explain COVID based on geographic exposures and ancestral inheritance, um, at least not yet. I I will say there's some intriguing data that was published just last week in Nature, uh, but we don't have time to to go over that now. Um, So in other cases, you know, the observed racial differences are better explained by social determinants of health, right? So for polio, these social determinants may have afforded a paradoxical protection uh, but for most conditions, and, and COVID is clearly one of them, uh, the social determinants uh, actually lead to worse outcomes. And that's the major driver of the difference, or a major driver. Yeah. So, I mean, very, very complicated. And I think that's a, a good insight. And the most important thing, Tony, that I take away from all of this is that we in the medical field are having a long overdue conversation about race essentialism in general, about medicine and in biological sciences. Um 
I personally am still struggling with the takeaway from this episode because I think it's undeniable that the medical conception of race and the social determinants of health has dramatically progressed over the last couple centuries. Um, and even if there is, as you mentioned, still a persistence of some of these old ideas. But uh, And this is my, my big question, and I think what's great about all of us talking here today, have we actually gotten better at doing anything to combat these inequities and more fundamentally to provide better care for our patients? And uh, I think that's the reason why, you know, why I'm less certain about all of this. But the fact that we're all here at this uh, Massachusetts ACP meeting and I more broadly the ACP in general is talking about that. It gives me hope for the future. So thank you guys very much for listening to the podcast. And we are going to take some questions now. And there's already some questions in the chat and we can take them by talking as well. So just getting about uh, answering the questions because the audio quality was unfortunately not very good. So I'm just going to cut them out. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Doing our talk on the history of syphilis at the National ACP last year was one of the highlights of my career, and both Tony and I had been so excited to repeat this. Uh, we had a great um, lecture on the ethical issues surrounding the medical definition of death for the National ACP Conference in Los Angeles back in April, but uh, of course that didn't happen. So I was really jazzed that I got to speak at the Massachusetts ACP Conference, which was generally themed on health disparities in COVID-19. So I want to thank personally the conference organizers and full disclosure, I'm on, the, I'm on the ACP committee, but I did not invite myself and Elisa Choi, who is the governor of our chapter, for inviting both Tony and me. Uh, in case you are interested, I've placed the PowerPoint on the website, so that's www.bedsiderounds.org, if you want to see the slides that we were referencing. And of course, all the sources, like always, are in the show notes and also on the website. And while I'm thanking people, I have to thank Tony, um, who, I mean, if you're on Twitter and you don't follow Tony, you're crazy. He's at Tony underscore brew. He is the master of the tutorial. And now he also has a podcast called The Curious Clinicians, which he hosts along with my friends Hannah Abrams and Avi Abraham Cooper. Okay. So uh, while I have you here, I want to talk about some general behind the scenes stuff about bedside rounds because 2020 has been an absolutely insane year for me. And I'm not even counting the fact that there's a global pandemic and my March and April were basically spent working nonstop during the surge here in Massachusetts. Uh, there have been a lot of exciting developments in my life and career. So first of all, in July of this year, I launched along with Shreya Trivedi, a new center at Beth Israel called the IMED Initiative. And IMED stands for Innovations in Media and Education Delivery. I'm not going to go into the details too much right now, but I honestly believe that digital education is poised to fundamentally transform graduate medical education. That's, a, that's residency, um, which still largely is chugging along much in the same way it has for the last century. And so... All of a sudden, I have a research agenda, I'm writing curricula, I'm performing educational randomized control trials, as well as lecturing and teaching on the topic. And oh yeah, on top of that, I'm planning for a national online conference in January, January 22nd to be uh, exact if you want to come, but I'll be talking more about that soon. Obviously, I had no idea that my path would end up this way when I launched Bedside Rounds almost six years ago, like literally two weeks after my intern year. Um... I also had no idea how it would change me as a physician. This transition has been exciting, but also challenging, so I appreciate everybody bearing with me. I'm actually giving a talk on this exact topic tomorrow at the Michigan Annual ACP meeting, which is why it's on my mind right now, uh, and I'm also going to upload that for everybody, so that's when I'll go into much more detail. 
But uh, there are two major life events. And uh, as some of you know, I have a wonderful almost two-year-old son. And uh, any day now, he will be joined by a little brother. So I'm about to be in the two under two crowd. And honestly, I'm just staring into a black box here. I have no idea what it's going to be like, except that I am sure it'll be difficult. All of this is to say... Like 2020 has been crazy and 2021 shows no signs of letting up. But, and this is the big but, making bedside rounds is incredibly important to me and my goals as a physician and also as a teacher. Not only because, you know, I actually really enjoy chasing esoteric medical questions down deep rabbit holes. Honestly, it's one of my favorite topics. But also because... I'd like to think that many of the things that I'm talking about, like uncertainty, epistemology, nosology, ethics, path dependence... These are deeply important for understanding the medical system in the year 2020 and honestly for practicing medicine. So I want to thank all of you for continuing to listen and for bearing with what might be a pretty chaotic year in terms of bedside rounds. That is it. So CME is available for this episode. If you are a member of the American College of Physicians, you go to www.acponline.org slash bedside rounds. All of the episodes are online at www.bedsiderounds.org or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or however you get podcasts. The Facebook page is at slash bedside rounds. Uh, the show's Twitter account is also at bedside rounds. And I'm personally at Adam Rodman MD on Twitter and uh, come along and say hi. And I'm also always up for a good polite argument about medicine. <laughs> uh, just like I am in real life. All of the sources are in the show notes, and a transcript is available on the website along with a slide set. And finally, while I am actually a doctor and I don't just play one on the internet, this podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner.